I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Mmm, cookie. I'm going to be editing this one, so you're welcome, future Hannah. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Neil Barnholden. And we are gathered in person in sunny, forest fire, smoke-filled Edmonton with the cool, coppery glow of the obscured sun overhead to talk about a movie, (gasps) which you may have guessed, given the thrilling baritone of our actual friend with a film degree, Neil Barnholden. But not just any movie. No? No. (laughs) We just watched, like, just watched Voldemort Origins of the Air, the 2018 fan-made prequel directed by Gian Maria Pizzato and starring a bunch of Italian people, I guess. I looked them up on IMDb, but I didn't write down their names. Rather than giving you the IMDb summary, I'm going to give you a couple of choice excerpts from the excellent Telegraph review, which called it a... Fun-free Harry Potter fan film, consisting of a glacially paced series of flashbacks with a vocal track frequently so out of sync as to be another film altogether. (laughs) But what did we think of it? Let's find out. And because we're absolute trash, we're going to do so in a series of new segments, starting with the diadem of casting. (laughs) Such trash. I'm also going to take this opportunity to apologize once again, as always, to our listeners for the presence of the cat with absolutely zero chill, who is currently right now extremely distressed that we're not paying attention to her and is flopping around and going, meow into the microphone that was actually me just now and you know as i say that she's just laying perfectly still on the carpet (laughs) i've never had anything but chill anyway okay let's talk but (laughs) anyway let's (laughs) so let's talk about casting Can I just say, before we say anything else about casting, I don't understand the function of having two women who look the exact same age playing two versions of the same character who are supposed to be two distinct ages. It didn't make any sense to me. I was very confused and thought, maybe I just don't know what I'm seeing. I thought that there were two characters and there are not. 
Yeah, so the protagonist of the movie is a character named Grisha McTaggan, which is what happens, I think, when Italian people make up Scottish names. It might be a real name. Who knows? And she's... I thought it was McLagan. Oh, my God. Maybe it was Grisha McLagan. Yeah, Grisha. Yep, Grisha McLagan. Do we know another McLagan? Yeah, Cormac McLagan. Cormac. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Is Grisha McLagan related to Cormac McLagan? I mean, she was. Oh, spoilers. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in five. Four, three, two, one. <laughs> we will actually, I think we can hold out on spoiling this until we get later into the episode. We can, uh, there's a twist, a twist, <laughs> a pretzel twist. Uh, anyway, so Christian McClagan. I paid such close attention to this movie, can you tell? Uh, is played by two different actors, um, one in the flashbacks when she's a student at Hogwarts and one in the present day when she's an Auror. But the woman that they cast to play her in the flashbacks is the same age as the woman that they cast to play her in the the present tense, which is particularly shocking in the moment where she says, I'm just a second year. And you're like, oh, this is porn. We're watching porn because that's a 25-year-old woman (laughs) who just sultrily said, oh, me, I don't know anything. I'm just a second year sexy hair toss. But what's also so baffling is she's the only one who's played by two different actors with the intention of representing two different ages. Yeah, so they, they keep the same riddle the whole time, possibly justified by the fact that he's already in his final year when we encounter him in the flashbacks we don't need to justify this it was a poor it was a poor choice everybody was very sexy sexy riddle mentions as you know he's head boy (laughs) just great great dialogue yeah everyone everyone's really good looking it's kind of it's kind of (laughs) weird i mean it's good but you know i guess i don't know is it good um, not to sort of jump ahead, I'm sure we'll talk about plot more when we get to adaptation. I'm sorry, there was a plot? Yeah, I mean, quote unquote plot. But there is definitely an implied romance yeah. between them. And like the only point where we're told the age of the the girl of Grisha at the school is when she's when she's 12 or 11. Like 11 or 12, like a second year. Um, And like, so maybe in later scenes, like in the romantic scene between her and Tom, and I say romantic very loosely because it's an impassioned and confusing dialogue near a waterfall and there's tinkling piano music. So I take it that we're supposed to interpret that as signaling a romance that was never seen on screen and is offered only as subtext and that given the twist becomes extra confusing. But maybe she's supposed to be older in that scene. Like maybe they're supposed to be closer in age. It's 100% unclear what maybe he was also supposed to be a second year in that first scene where she says, I'm just a second year. Maybe. Well, I don't know about you, but it took me a solid 15 minutes of this hour long movie to figure out that they were the same person. Yeah. A solid 15 minutes. Like we move back and forth between, her in the past and her in the present and i had i didn't realize they were the same person i'm not sure if i'm remembering this right but even in the the opening sequence which happens before the frame narrative is established it looks like there are two different women battling Mm -hmm. and so i was under the impression that this was going to be a movie about like witches and it's not No. no no Yeah, so, you know, it's an amateur movie. These are probably not professional actors. I looked at a number of them and they don't have other entries on IMDb. And IMDb is pretty exhaustive. So that suggests that these were sort of fans hanging out. And so we can assume like a lot of the sort of weirdness of casting comes from possibly. I mean, I say that, but then it's like just a bunch of real sexy fans who hang out together. No. <laughs> Italian so maybe everybody in Italy is just this good looking yeah (laughs) no I've been to Italy there's lots of normal looking people 
Yeah. But the the sort of the what ends up coming across is a almost tongue in cheek. Like you know in Wet Hot American Summer where they're supposed to be teenagers like camp counselors and they're all like solidly in their late 30s early 40s like which just makes it absolutely incredible to watch them acting like teenagers like this felt like that but it wasn't supposed to be tongue-in-cheek yeah Yeah. what did we think of the actual acting that was a trap (laughs) i found it strained and painful to watch I guess I'd also like to say I thought the dialogue was also not very good. So I'm not sure how good of an actor you have to be to deliver bad dialogue well. And also, as that excerpt from the Telegraph review indicated, they also did they also did a very poor job of syncing up the vocal tracks with people's mouths. And so we had... <laughs> Neil and I were sure that it must be dubbed. And Marcel, in classic Marcel style, was like... Uh, no, I think it's just bad vocal tracks. And we were like, it's probably dubbed. And she was like, all right. <laughs> if you say so. And then I looked it up and I was like, yeah, no, yeah, you're totally right. It's just badly edited vocal tracks. And she was like, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Quietly, triumphantly write the Marcel Cosman story. <laughs> Always better at reading things. <laughs> so infuriating. Anyway, so all of those things combined, the sort of the very poorly written dialogue, the bad vocal syncing sort of made, created a challenge, I think, for any actors. And some people, the movie prominently features a like Soviet general who is struggling to hold on to his accent. So all things combined. Did you also, oh, you won't have noticed this on imdb but the voices and the actors are different so that's part of why they're syncing so badly so i assume it's italian actors and english voice actors yeah so we've got like the two grisha mcclagan and then grisha mcclagan voice right and like these are italian names madalena orcali and aurora moroni are the actors and then the voice is done by amy davies okay yeah so so there's a lot of different people involved here, and that would also account for why of like it's just it just doesn't match. With that in mind, I think that they did a not too bad job of syncing a vocal track by completely different people <laughs> with with act with actors. That's I I want to I want to maybe be a little bit less harsh about it then. <laughs> Given given that, a, a little bit less harsh, not like a lot less harsh. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about casting, but it's probably hard for those of you who haven't seen this to follow what we're talking about without knowing something about the M plot. So we're just going to sidestep over here and pick up and peruse the locket of adaptation (laughs) sorry that was the locket of adaptation in case you couldn't hear me laughing through it (laughs) okay neil summarize the plot for us (laughs) (laughs) it if you go to wikipedia you're going to see a description of the plot of this movie that is significantly easier to follow and yeah to the point of being misleading and and it's hard to kind of describe the plot of this movie without getting into the fact that the way the plot happens is really really difficult to follow and extremely convoluted but basically it's that um grisha mcclagan is breaking into an horror warehouse in soviet russia i guess to get tom riddle's diary uh and then she's interrogated by the general who's in charge of it and we see a series of flashbacks about her past where she was friends with voldemort i'm sorry with with tom riddle as he slowly sort of drifted away from their friendship slash sort of a romance which we didn't really see that part of uh and 
I guess, puts together the pieces of what would become the Horcruxes in the later films. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about the shocking twist ending? Let's hold off the shocking twist to the end of the segment. Yeah, and then there's a shocking twist at the end. <gasps> yeah, but I mean, I think that's pretty accurate. Did you want to add anything? I guess the only other thing that's like, it's not significant from a narrative perspective, but nothing in this movie is significant from a narrative perspective, which we'll have to talk about because it's kind of interesting in a way from a scholarly perspective that nothing in it is narratively interesting, like interestingly uninteresting. But the other thing is that Grisha and Tom are part of a club of the four heirs of the founders of the original houses. So she's the heir of Gryffindor. And then we also have Lazarus, the heir of Hufflepuff and like a Viking Wiglaf, the lead singer of The Cure, wearing some very fun eyeliner in 1945. I looked it up. That's the year that Tom Riddle finished at Hogwarts as the heir of Ravenclaw. And so the four of them, we find out the movie is a very confusing series of embedded flashbacks where you flashback to a scene where people are describing via exposition another earlier scene. And you often don't see the original scene. So it's quite hard to follow or to fit or to piece together the the chronology. But towards the end, we get some like flashbacks within flashbacks within flashbacks of like the four of them sitting in a forest together having a good time. So obviously they're friends at some point and like created a club about like uniting their powers to make the world better. And then it appears that gradually Riddle has been picking them off as he as he turned to evil. There's this one scene where they're like, remember, we took an oath and the th- and three out of the four of them. So not uh, not Riddle, but the other three decide to re-speak the oath. And it's something to the effect of we are the heirs of the four houses. We take an oath to make the world better with our powers. And <laughs> And then Tom Riddle comes out of the shadows with a slow clap. And it's like, that was a great speech. The whole thing. My God. It's just, it's excruciating to watch. I'm sorry. I loved it. It feels like this was a Kickstarter funded fan made production. So like, there you go. Our review is, it's very bad. Um, But I think from an adaptation perspective, we can talk a little bit in maybe some more interesting ways about like what it's doing and how it's functioning as as fan fiction and Neil a point that you made a couple of times while we were watching was that the movie seems to simultaneously assume a huge amount of background knowledge because you have to be pretty deeply embedded in the fandom to like follow what's happening and then simultaneously a willingness to suspend the fact that you know for sure how everything's gonna end because it's a prequel and that kind of made me think about critiques of like the Han Solo movie, which is like you have to care deeply about the minutia of your fandom. And at the same time, you have to not particularly care about narrative because you know where Han Solo's going. Like, you know what's going to happen to him. So like, is that possibly a feature of a sort of deeply fandom embedded prequel like a a sort of lack of interest in narrative and caring much more about just like minute details of this world the scene that made me (laughs) next question (laughs) no the the scene that made me think about that a lot is when i believe that we see the murder of hepzibah smith which is a very minor incident in the original harry potter i mean it's important in the history of Tom Riddle, but we never see it. It's only sort of alluded to. And in this movie, we see it in a fair amount of detail. But then I think in the next scene, the concept of Horcruxes is explained to us. And so it was weird because I felt like at first, this movie spends a lot of time showing us things that we can sort of infer or that we can fill in the details of what it's filling in details basically of connecting dots of what must have happened to Tom Riddle and things he must have done. And that Hepzibah Smith scene is really long, despite the fact that it doesn't seem overly significant Mm -hmm. 
within the sort of narrative that Grisha, Grisha is telling. But it really gave me a kind of weird whiplash then when the concept of Horcruxes is explained. Mm-hmm. As though, like, why would you be watching this movie if you didn't know what Horcruxes are? Which is a very simple concept that was explained quite a... It's very key to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it would just be so strange to say, you know, here's our scene that shows you how Hogwarts was founded. And then also we're going to explain how magic works. It's like... I, if I care about one of these things, like if I really care about the Hepzibah Smith scene, I don't also need other things explained. But I, I did really feel like this movie's main drive was to link up and explain some fairly minor kind of points or to to fill in the blanks mm-hmm. between points in the original series. I don't... One of my sort of things that I didn't really like about this movie is that I don't really feel like it added anything to those stories. Even the shocking twist ending of this movie doesn't doesn't really add much, right? It takes everything away. Yeah, yeah. I, the the twist ending actually really calls into question what any of this meant. Yeah. And even the character of of Grisha McLagan, who's sort of the movie's main addition to fandom, doesn't wind up adding anything really. I really like the idea of a prequel that's sort of bound within the confines, like a prequel adaptation that's bound within the confines of existing canon. Um, I think that that there's a lot of mm, sort of like a really technically specific genre of poem where you have to work within those confines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very specific narrative constraints. And I think that... I think that as an adaptation, this movie does a terrible job of uh, working within that structure. It feels like it feels like it was creating a whole other like. Oh my! Get out of here, you cat! You're such a good kitty. Like it, it feels almost like. It feels almost like the writers were trying to create a story that didn't, they were trying to create a story that then they could just like, just put in a box instead of like, instead of doing an interesting job of filling in those blanks, they were like, well, here's a side story that just kind of like happens like an episode over here. And the reason, you know, it's connected is because we're just going to take all this other stuff that's already explained in the books and then just like bring it in so that you know that it's, so that you know it's connected instead of like maybe weaving it together in a in a more engaging way. I really like the idea of seeing Tom at Hogwarts and seeing something more about, you know, what he's like as a student and something like, because all we know is like that something happens at Hogwarts. Like that's really where sort of he takes that turn. Like by the time he's graduated Hogwarts, he's sort of set himself on that path and all we get in the books is Dumbledore's narrative of it. And that is so clearly partial and biased. And I think the idea of like, let's see Tom as a student. Let's see him with friends. Let's see him when maybe he has some aspirations that are maybe more understandable, like before he's just a super villain. Let's see the way that his power and ambition maybe poisons those friendships. Like, and I think that's a lot of that's there. Like, I think that's maybe the kernel of the movie is like, what if we saw him before this happened? What if we learned more about these friendships? What if we introduced like, because there's four of them, it's like, well, what if Tom also had his own version of the Marauders who were like kids who were sort of just up to wacky hijinks that, you know, and that there ended up being this falling out. And like, that's all kind of there. It gets really lost and it gets really lost, I think, through through a struggle to tell that story effectively and to like literally figure out how to put a narrative together in a way that that holds together. But like the sort of those basic ideas of like, let's see more of this character and chart like the emotional journey through which he arrives where we know he arrives. Like it's not a fundamentally flawed premise. Um, yeah, maybe not like the most narratively interesting always, but like. A character study is an interesting thing, even if it's not charged by narrative. I think also there's something interesting about the idea of applying this logic to a prequel where you know the destination Mm -hmm. of the character. So if you know that a character ends up being this unfathomably evil 
supervillain. I mean, to me, it would be more interesting to start when they're not like that. And yeah, chart sort of work a character arc backwards almost, which is not what this movie does. Like in the scene that Marcel was describing, that's that's the first flashback where it seems apparent that Tom Riddle is already sort of estranged from his friends, right? He breaks Lazarus Smith's arm in that scene. There's actually one flashback before that, which is where Grisha is excited about Quidditch and he's like, Quidditch is dumb. And she's like, maybe you don't like it because of your muggle blood. And then the camera zooms in on his eyes and then cuts immediately to a shocked looking owl. And can I just say, reaction shot from an owl, my number one favorite filmic technique. Always, always here for an owl going like, what? (laughs) Fucking loved that. I loved it. Yeah, so we get that scene right away and he's awful to Grisha and that's supposed to be before they're falling out and he is an asshole. So that's like confusing. It reminds me of a critique that we brought up in, I actually, I guess it was a book episode, so it was just the two of you. I can't take credit for this. Um, but it was when when we see Tom Riddle in flashback in the books, and he seems to already be evil as a child. And I think, as I recall... We talk about this in the movie, the sixth movie episode. So you were there because we were talking about the characterization of evil, like evil 10-year-old Tom Riddle. Okay, right. As I seem to recall, though, I mean, the critique there is that it's it's suggesting that the character has just always been as evil as Voldemort and that there was never any, he never, it's not a matter of a choice that he made. He never could have made any other choices. He was just an evil, he was an evil child who grew up to be an evil adult. Yeah, and I, I think that this movie really could have done something different and really, really didn't. I had forgotten about that Quidditch scene, but he already seems evil. And also, we don't see the characters being friends. He's at the end. We see a photo of the meek friends. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So is this an okay time to spoil the twist? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So... Uh, spoiler alert. (laughs) You're welcome for everyone's favorite sound effect. Look at that wild cat you've got. She's wild. She's full of beans. So the twist, which when we discovered, we saw, saw on Wikipedia that there was a twist. And so we paused and guessed and Neil got it. So not that good a twist. Um, I mean, he has a film degree. He is he is a famed film critic, but it's not a good. Twist it's not a. I was absolutely just guessing in the dark. Yeah, there. Like, it's yeah, not a good twist. yeah. So the twist is the most like sort of present tense of the movie is is um, Grisha telling the story of all of this stuff to the Soviet general, and the twist is that it was never Grisha. It was just Voldemort in disguise, which is the stolen twist from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Um, you can't, we can't all just be like, anyway, all, everybody's Voldemort. <laughs> Surprise. And it's revealed in a very confusing way because right at the end, the general's letting her go and says, well, first he lets her go saying that that story didn't make any sense, which is a real burn on the movie itself. And then he says, but I have one question. And you're like, dun, dun, dun. And his question is, how did you know that Tom's diary was here? And she says, I didn't, but maybe I did. (laughs) And it's delivered about like that. And then a bunch of cool visual effects happen. And all of a sudden she's 
Voldemort. And it was Voldemort the whole time. But that means because 100% of the story was delivered to us via flashback exposition that nothing that we have just seen is true because it was all a story that Voldemort was telling this guy to fuck with him. So we don't, we literally don't know at the end if any of these other characters existed, if any of that actually happened, or if it was just all made up. And that's also something that the general says, because the gen- when the general is saying, that was a very confusing story. I didn't understand that at all. Who could believe such a confusing story? He also adds like, but, you know, this is also just your story. So who even knows? It is your truth. You had all of that veritaserum, but it is just your truth, not necessarily the truth. So like, again, general doing hours, the audience's work for us. So that just in case the movie doesn't make any sense. I have I have a question. On a scale of one to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, how bad was this adaptation? Do you guys remember the ratings that you respectively gave Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? No, neither do I. <laughs> we gave it a rating? Oh my God, and then we had a long conversation about numbers. What I will say is that I think it actually really uh, throws into relief how similarly hacky but better produced Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is because the narrative flaws at the heart of this movie are the same narrative flaws in the Fantastic Beasts movie. Like a prequel that actually adds nothing interesting or significant to the world or to the existence of any characters, an expansion of the world and added added characters that actually don't particularly do anything and then a a shitty surprise reveal where it was secretly Voldemort the whole time mission impossible style just rip off your fake face like this is actually the same like you've done all the same things you just like it was more certainly Fantastic Beasts was more competently made I mean it should be their budget was 4,000 times (laughs) bigger and it had a you know a very experienced director at the helm like he you know that makes sense but i think it actually makes fantastic beasts look worse yeah i i totally agree with that though i i hadn't thought of that but you're totally right those those are the same problems we had it's just that fantastic beasts and where to find them is just the storytelling is better just of that story yeah. but yeah it's it's totally the same and you would have no investment in these people if it wasn't for these other texts that are involved Oh man, it, I mean, it's just, I just feel like it's not a great place for an adaptation to be if it, like this movie would just make no sense whatsoever if you didn't have all this information you could fill in. I'm reminded, I'm still, <sighs> my friend Ashra had some really smart and interesting things to say about Hogwarts and mystery to the extent where I'm considering maybe just sitting down with her and talking about Hogwarts and mystery and making it an episode because she made the otherwise very shitty game much more interesting to me. But a point that she made about the game is that it is unplayable and incomprehensible without established deep knowledge of the world. And in that sense is is also like this, deeply a fan property um, that just like you are stepping in saying like you already know and care about all of this. But that does lead me back as a sort of as a proposition of adaptation. Like I'm not sure if we can totally call, call this an adaptation because it was never meant to stand alone or to be watchable by people who aren't fans. You know, so it is a fan production very clearly. My question is very much Neil's like why the fuck explain horcruxes then like why not start from what we know and and expand why retread the same territory it's a good question I I don't know I mean I I feel like there's a kind of there's a kind of pleasure in this text in terms of seeing seeing things that you haven't seen before and that you didn't even really see in the books dramatized but it's so thin Mm -hmm. it's such a thin kind of surface level so I remember with the trailer for this project, I was very excited by the trailer because I thought, oh, it'd be really cool to actually see these things like we were just saying, but it's so thin because it just adds, it doesn't add anything to them. Like when the murder of Hepzibah Smith happens, you you just sort of think, yeah, I, that's kind of how I assume that happened, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. 
Do you remember, Neil, from the book, did Hepzibah Smith also have the locket? Or is that something that they added? Because when we were watching the movie, I remember thinking, oh, that's a that's a a new thing. But but then afterwards, I was like, I don't even know. Are you supposed to watch this movie with, you know, several tabs open to the Harry Potter wiki or something? Like, I just... I. I you know, I can, I can, it's like, I can sort of see the appeal, but I also just feel like that's such a, such a hampering of the narrative. <laughs> it just doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't add up. It's also hilarious to me that you would make a movie like this. And then at the end of the movie, have one of the main characters pronounce this a hopelessly convoluted narrative that no one could possibly follow or understand. Mm-hmm. I just, I truly don't know why you would do that. <laughs> It's so weird to have someone offer a really devastating critique of the movie inside the movie. I also wanted to say that I found it, I don't know if this was just a budget thing or something, but I found it very puzzling when there were scenes that they didn't show us because it seemed logically like they should have. Mm-hmm. Like the scene of what actually happened to Wiglaf, right? We we don't actually see what we're told happens to him. And I mean, again, the twist really raises questions of whether any of this happened this way but i did find it i mean i and you know i'm willing to give them some credit maybe it was just a budget thing and they just didn't have the time or the money to film it but it's very weird that there are some scenes that are just described to us and then other ones that are sort of enacted Mm -hmm. in a huge amount of detail so the way that the soviets got the diary is that they found a chest with a skeleton in it and the diary also buried in it, and I guess died opening it because of the dark magic. And then, so at the end, after we found out that Grisha was actually Voldemort the whole time, we flash back, I think, to the team, the Soviet team recovering the chest, pondering, pontificating on the nature of darkness, which was a very confusing scene. Is that seem to imply something about the inevitable re-rise of fascism, perhaps making this a really timely 2018 movie? Because it does seem to imply that, like, you will only ever defeat one fascist leader just in time for another one to rise. That does seem to be the moral at the end. But in a passing reference, one of the guys says, this skeleton is female, which was one, like, listen, bones, like, you did not spend enough time examining the remains to know that didn't even see like we only see like a femur like what's happening but also it's a lady femur it's very dainty uh but also so the implication there is that that's grisha um it's a very loose implication but the wikipedia plot summary confirmed our suspicion so there you go i guess that's supposed to be grisha and if so then arguably the most important thing that happened in the entire story, which is at some point Tom turns on Grisha and murders her, but once loved her enough seemingly that when he tells the story of the diary, she features centrally in it, but that's left out entirely. Like whatever actually happened between them is like, shh, 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 you don't need to know. We're just inferring that that happened. Yeah. So like you've actually told us Less than we already knew. So my theory, mm-hmm. how I choose to read this this film, having discussed now with the two of you, mm-hmm. is that there were no other two founders. It was just Tom Riddle and this Grisha McLagan person, who was also probably not a founder's heir, mm-hmm. was just a regular human 12-year-old girl that Voldemort maybe had some kind of close association with, be it inappropriately sexual or not. Intimacy of some kind. And so my theory is that the others just didn't even exist and is all just part of this loosey-goosey story that was very convoluted, no one would believe anyway, in order to... Uh, distract the general long enough to I don't know (laughs) I don't know (laughs) I don't understand the point of it but I just don't think that the other characters existed that's all I've got 
I don't want to live in a world where wig laugh Sigurdsson isn't real. How dare you? He fronted the band The Cure. He, just, he is the front man of The Cure. That is a really good point about him and his a groovy eyeliner. Voldemort always comes too late. I mean, I... I... I guess if you think about it in terms of what it says about the character of Voldemort, it's that he's pretending to be someone who still sees some good in Voldemort in Tom Riddle, who does not in fact exist and who he killed. Like he killed this actual person, but he's pretending to be them and they have a sympathetic view of Voldemort. But I don't really know why he's stalling for time. I guess he's trying to get the sympathy of that general, but it's so weird when he just gets the diary. <laughs> Sorry, I just stared stared into the middle distance for 30 seconds. So maybe he was actually captured, like successfully captured, and he had to bluff his way out. But he seems like the end implies that he is powerful enough to kill all of them and that he didn't need to actually be captured at all. Do you think maybe Marcel has something to add? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, new fan theory. Not fan theory. New film. New fan of this film theory. The reason that they have two different actors playing Grisha McLegan is because they aren't actually the same Grisha McLegan. The Grisha McLegan in the movie maybe doesn't even exist. And the bones of the woman in the trunk where I think we can assume that Voldemort like like is looking like her before she's bones. Is any of this making sense? No. Okay. So the reason that there are two different actors playing that same character is because they are not in fact the same character and the body that Voldemort is using to trick the general is just some other random woman's body and it may be the body of the bones in the chest but it may not be whatever the important thing is that they're not the same person it's just that he's pretending he's in that body pretending to be that of that young girl that he once had a dalliance of some kind with yes hannah new fan theory The reason why they're played by two different actors is because Voldemort doesn't really remember what she looked like that well. (laughs) He's just kind of like, I mean, all white ladies look the same, right? Like, I don't know. She was like white and like, like hair. It was like kind of reddish, maybe hard to say. This is also a story that Voldemort's telling where Voldemort's like, yeah, she was really into me, but I was too into this work. (laughs) Too in to become an evil wizard. Yeah. Also, there are these two other chumps, but I defeated them. (laughs) Well, yeah, if you think about this story from Voldemort's point of view, that's a really, really self-aggrandizing story. Do, Do you think Voldemort also doesn't quite remember the audio of them speaking, syncing up with the lip movements? can't remember what language they were speaking and so when he thinks about it he's just like (laughs) that's it he's telling the story to the best of his recollection he was just only barely paying attention to those losers so at the end when the general's like that didn't really make any sense he's like yeah i know i just like who can keep it straight honestly anyway they're all dead now (laughs) great you know what i love this movie now (laughs) take it all back this movie's perfect so i'm suddenly remembering the moment when grisha mcclegan tells the general that dumbledore always had a tremendous respect for voldemort and in the moment i remember saying out loud "Eh," because that is not canon (laughs) and so that now makes perfect sense if it's from voldemort's perspective because he probably assumes everybody had a tremendous respect for him. Mm-hmm. Incredible. It all adds up. This movie is watertight. 
All right. We've talked about some of the weaknesses in this movie, but I think we can all agree there's somewhere where it really excels. And that's right in here. Just look inside. Inside this cup of production. So it was pretty, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So moving on. (laughs) Okay. So I wonder if one of the reasons why we get so little of the actual fun, friendly backstory of the four heirs um, is because you know, limited budgets are limited. They really only had three sets, right? They had the room of requirement. They had Hepzibeth Smith's sitting room and they had the bunker where Voldemort was being held. And then other than that, they had some like sweeping landscapes and a waterfall that was distinctly green screened. Looked like a screensaver. (laughs) They just stood in front of somebody's like Windows 95 desktop. No, that's harsh. Windows 98. Was there a Windows 98? It doesn't matter. And so what I will say is that the sets that they had, with the exception of the waterfall, were quite good. Um, Very, very believable. Would have been more believable had we spent less time there. But, you know, that's that. And I also was really into how well the... um, Oh, my God. What's the word for it? The like, uh, you know, like the spinny newspaper things and the I don't know what the word is for those. Okay. well, the spinny newspapers and the even and the what? And yeah, the moving the moving pictures in the moving picture were all very (laughs) were very um, they connected really seamlessly with the actual like canon films. I think they did a really good job of that. There were also some sort of inexplicable but good long takes of things there's the scene where they're in the room of requirement talking is i think mostly one really long take and i find it kind of inexplicable that you would shoot a conversation between four people as one really long take and it results in some really bizarre blocking (laughs) like really weird where people have their back to the camera while they're talking although maybe this is just dubbed afterwards more evidence that's about when we started to think that. But uh, it's, I mean, I understand it's not easy to do a long take. And that was impressive. Also, the movie starts with a really long take of a wizard battle. And that was pretty sweet. Yeah. It's a good wizard battle. I actually think that wizard battle might have been the best scene in the movie, which is sort of unfortunate just because one, I mean, one, you started with your best scene. But other movies start with their best scenes. Into I'm just kidding. Up. Oh. And... Also, uh, Watchmen. Oh, yeah, yeah. The opening credits are the best part of that movie by far. Yeah, so it was it was lovely, but none of us had any idea what the fuck was going on, and so it was lovely, but also confusing. But in that opening scene, you really get a sense of like they're doing a great job of the spells. They're doing a great job of the like disapparition and apparition magic. Looks very cool. Um, like looks like a Hollywood movie. Like yeah. it's very well done. And also her costume was real cool. Yeah. And you don't get to see it for the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie she is sitting behind a desk. And the vast majority, while we do get those scenes that are like a single long shot, the vast majority of the conversations happen with unbelievably intense face close-ups. Very frequently close-ups on people's eyes Again, probably because they were dubbing it. And so the, like, you know, the more you cut people's mouths out of the scenes, the easier that is to do. But the number of intense eye close-ups was quite disconcerting. Um, But also meant that you didn't get to see as much of the sets when they were good or of the costumes, which were also sometimes quite good. Good special effects. Like, yeah, I think wands are an easy effect to do badly, if that makes sense. And these were good. Yeah, that's all I had. Well, I will say that the knitted house scarves in the breakup scene between Tom Riddle and Grisha McLegan were terrible. 
because it's supposed to be 1945 and they were these like neon acrylic yarn colors. They didn't look old timey at all. Do not approve. Zero of 10. Fan theory. (laughs) Tom Riddle doesn't know anything about knitting. (laughs) So in his memory, people are wearing completely different (laughs) clothing than they were. fan theory tom riddle doesn't remember where they were when that conversation happened so he was like i don't know there's a waterfall or something <laughs> hard to say could have been a flying toaster it's really hard to say <laughs> who even knows, <laughs> who even knows? <laughs> it's such a good thing to add to your movie at the end to be like anyway this was all just in some guy's head so if any of it doesn't make sense You know, it wasn't relevant to his journey. (laughs) All right. It's time for our last and everybody's favorite segment. The Sword of Credits. So thanks, listeners, for joining us for whatever number of episode this is going to be of Witch Please, Season 3, Witch Please Gone Rogue. The rest of our episodes are, as per usual, available at ohwitchplease.ca. The other thing you can do at ohwitchplease.ca is you can donate to the show and uh, considering all the hard work we clearly put into this episode I think you should strongly consider doing that. This movie was free on YouTube but I spent about $30 on snacks so I need you to donate at least that much (laughs) need to make back these snack money. Special thanks as always to Trevor Chow Fraser our erstwhile tech support who is like super erstwhile this season because like he hasn't done shit and (laughs) the robot of our hearts hi how are you doing i have no idea when this episode is going to come out and i have no idea what other episodes we're going to make and i don't know anything about how this season is going to unfold because it is in fact which please gone rogue but until then later witches Or is it earlier?